All right, we're back here at Battle for Wellness. What's up, what's up? Welcome to our next podcast. We're here together, as you can tell. Um, it's our second podcast together, so our second like real podcast that's not like a rant mm-hmm. or driving in the car talking. So we have a couple things we want to discuss today and kind of help, help you learn and teach you. Um, so Sarah's going to start off with what she's been looking at and researching. Yeah, so the way we do this is we both have uh, our specialties in our area. And so I cover topics uh, mainly within like uh, food, diet, nutrition, um, spiritual wellness, mental wellness, um, and Troy has his area of specialties. So today I want to spotlight two particular labels on many of our products. And if you're watching us on YouTube, I'm gonna show up the picture of the different labels. Uh, The first one is the non-GMO verified project. I'm sure you've all seen it. It has a little butterfly on it. And the second label is the USDA organic label. First, let's start with a label that has been slapped on 43,000 products now. Wow. Yeah, 43,000. So, uh, yeah, it's everywhere. And that's the one um, called the Non-GMO Verified Project. This is a nonprofit company, um, and it shows the the orange butterfly that's, like, sitting on um, a leaf. So... I have done a lot of research into this company and this label. And the problem with this label is its use of the word non. Okay, so Troy, when you hear the word non, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Um, Of course, that there's nothing, that there is no GMO. Non-GMO would mean none. Nothing. None, just add an E. Just add an E and that... Means none, yeah, of course. Zilch. That's, yeah. Not a mucho. Doesn't mean like, oh, a tiny bit or. Yeah, okay. So it literally says the word non right on the non GMO project label. But the problem with this is um, there are a, a variety of guidelines that must be met for verification to be made. Well, right on the website, it shows a table with a bunch of different products listed, such as seeds, human foods, ingredients, supplements, personal care, and other products. Then it shows next to those listed an action threshold of the percentage of GMOs that are allowed in the product. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, so... There's GMOs that are allowed in each of these. Okay, so categories. think about what I listed too. So seeds. Okay. Which is like crops everywhere, right? Human foods. That's very broad, yeah, right? Right. Um, ingredients, supplements. As we all know, supplements are not regulated by the FDA at all, which is like even scarier. Personal care and other products. Okay, you guys. There's so, so. many products they have to say <laughs> and other products. 
All right. So yes, if you look, so everything probably. Yeah, literally. That's why it's on forty three thousand products. Okay, w- it's on like salt. I wonder how many. <laughs> I wonder how many products there are in like an average grocery store. Oh gosh. So I'm looking at this table. I'm looking at their guidelines, and I'm like, uh, what the hell? So, uh, so when us consumers. We are trusting this label to show us which products are 100% non-GMO free, hence the word non-GMO. But yet, according to their own guidelines, that's simply not the case. To make things even worse, on the non-GMO project's website, documents under section V listed testing part A called action thresholds. It states absence of all GMOs is the target for all uh for all gmos oh, oh sorry i skipped is the target for all gmo project standards and is a part of their quality management system so they're they shoot <laughs> they're like they're they're shooting for non-gmo but they might come up short is that what they're saying yeah they're like we really are trying to make this a hundred percent non-gmo but According to our guidelines, we are going to allow up to 5% of non-GMO in those projects. We're just going to allow that little, you know, wiggle room. In their defense, is now maybe why it's called project? Like they're (laughs) shooting? Like it's a project. Like they're really trying. No, I mean, serious. Like they're trying. I mean, but it's very deceptive. Well, that's the point. I mean, come on, non-GMO. This is in my opinion, it's extremely deceptive. Like, unless you do the research and you know that this is what their guidelines are, you you put, you put pick up that product. I mean, a lot of people know what GMOs are and they are like the devil in most people's eyes. So you look at that and you're like, ah, and you have this comfort, like, yay, yeah. I'm buying a, a nice healthy product. And you probably pay a little bit of more money for that too. Yeah, right. Right? You're okay. trying to do right by your family, mm-hmm. so that label makes you feel a lot better. Right. So you can't have both things in your life. You can't have a label that says non, but yet it allows a percentage of GMOs to be in your food. It's a total sham, and our labeling system obviously sucks and is broken. So... Uh, surely they don't want consumers to know this. They yeah. clearly do not want people to know this because it's bad for business. If people actually know that you are buying a product that has genetically modified organisms in it, wouldn't you think twice about buying that product? About paying that higher price? Yeah, I mean... You might just say, well, screw it. I want to pay half the price or I'm going to go get these other two crummier brands on sale. Right. Because it's really not what I'm getting what I'm paying for. Right. So in my opinion, after doing the research on the non-GMO verified product project company and the label that they are so um, just putting it out there blatantly yeah slapping on literally everything that is in a store um i personally am not going to invest my money into that label anymore um and honestly i think they deserve some emails 
from us consume, consumers expressing our dissatisfaction with their um, leniency on the amount of GMOs that they allow in their products when they're claiming that they're 100% GMO free. I mean, are you with me on this or what? Seems a little shady. Well, yeah, of course. You know, but it's... They take advantage of people because they know that people don't put in the work or the research or the effort. So right. the, the first glance is non-GMO, boom, grab it, I feel good. I'm doing what I'm doing right by my family. Right. Because most people, the majority of and they don't look into things deeply. And that goes with everything. It's all manipulation. Right. And it's in a lot of a lot of the things that marketers use against us is fear so they say like oh my gosh don't use this product because you're going to get cancer from it you're going to die so we're going to put this label on it to protect you but yet they're really not protecting us like they say they are so you know the one thing that i always want to point out to everyone is we the consumer we have the power we are in control our dollars make or break companies and where we choose to spend our money so if you have a problem with something a company is doing and we and we all band together and we start you know voicing our dissatisfaction towards something it it works and it can change things so yeah because it's all about the mighty dollar to them mm -hmm. in all reality you know there's very few companies that are actually out there trying to do what's right for your health and for the people as a whole it's all about the dollar and the profit and their special interest groups and right. everything else so right so on a more positive note um now i would like to compare this label to the one that i'm sure you guys also all have seen and might even have some questions behind which is why i wanted to do this and it's the one that's called USDA Organic. I'm sure you've seen it many times at the store, right? Of course. Now, thank goodness, this label is actually legit. So you can take a sigh of relief with me knowing we've all been paying premium prices for a reason and getting our money's worth. So who's behind this label is, the, is a department within the federal government called the National Organic Program, but it's regulated by the United States Department of Agriculture. What is great about this is its regulations reach farmers around the world, ensuring people everywhere are eating a higher quality food and especially the food that's being imported into us from other countries they have to abide by our country's strict regulations on farming practices and livestock care and practices as well so this label because of all of that is considered the gold standard label um yeah, yeah right go get, america get the gold so um like I said, I really love that this keeps all farms worldwide um, that bear this label within the USDA standards, which means prohibiting GMO seeds being planted. They also test all crops for any GMO residue at multiple levels of production. 
It also prohibit, prohibits the use of chemical or synthetic fertilizers and pesticide use. Farms cannot use any antibiotics and synthetic hormones for any animals. And lastly, it prohibits the use of artificial coloring, flavoring, flavorings, and preservatives. That is huge. Those are all very toxic um, ingredients that are in um, that are in a lot of food that are causing diabetes. What? <laughs> Is that Obesity a word you're made and up? diabetes together. That's my made up word. Oh. Diabetes. Wow. So uh, hey. that's definitely a deep breath moment for me. Um, that I can ensure that when I go to the store and I see carrots that are 99 cents sitting next to organic carrots that are $1.99 um, and I grab that dollar higher bag of carrots, I'm actually getting a quality product that is full of nutrients that is not um, well, junk. Wait a minute. So does every product that says organic say usda organic or do they have other ones that just say organic and okay, they're not well, actually under that label okay so that's a good question and that's like a whole nother show because <laughs> the amount of labels that have popped up on products i mean there are so many labels coming out every day I, i'm like what's this i saw one literally just yesterday on the yogurt i bought you i'd never seen before i'm like oh, what yeah. is this so I, this, when I was researching these labels, I started with these ones because they are the most basic. I have seen other organic labels, but no, they are not backed by the, the federal government. So I, I so don't know how regulated they are. That's the best one to look for then. Well, because they, they have like inspectors that yeah. go out. They have all kinds of like undercover inspectors that just do pop inspections on farms, pop inspections on, um, you know, products that before they get packaged and they are like, they're like the FBI of organic farms, yeah. you know. Because I'm wondering too, like, let's say you go to like a grocery store at Vaughn's and it, something like that, and it says organic, like on, on the Vaughn's label, like, you know, where they have all their produce. And it just says like organic avocados, but and so you're just supposed to trust Vons that no. those are organic. No, uh, no, that it, that doesn't happen. There doesn't. No, this oh. this label is very um, this label is very um, particular. Well, I know on that one, I'm yeah. just saying a random organic. Like if you go to a grocery store and it has a big label that the grocery store put up yeah. saying organic, which they do. Right, but yeah. how do we know that that's really organic? If they just wrote, like, organic avocados, that their sign says organic avocados, you're paying more, but there's no USDA s stamp on the avocado. It's just saying, like, Sprouts is saying that they're organic. Can we trust that? I mean, everybody is shady, so I don't trust anybody. Well, it's it actually is very rare to just see a sticker that says organic. It always usually does bear the USDA label. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, they are pretty much, if not dominating the entire organic, um, produce and livestock production mm -hmm. because they have to keep the whole system in check and in line in order for those regulations to even like stay strict yeah. and, um, 
you, well, that's crazy. I mean, I mean, I get it. So like, you don't want to have anybody like those grocery stores if they were trying to be shady. I mean, that's a huge fine, I'm sure. So yeah, I I get what you're saying. You know, you don't want you don't want anyone faking it, making a a charging you a premium premium price for a label that's not actually legit. So. So, um, there's a lot more details that I could go into this. The, um, if you listen to my last episode on, um, the cows, oh gosh, the poor cows, I went into a lot of the organic guidelines on, um, livestock in particular. Um, you know, I just did like a brief touch on basically produce, um, for this episode, but you know, the, the federal government has extremely strict, guidelines when it comes to anything being labeled organic especially when it comes to livestock like especially like they are so protected it's crazy and i love it and I, I'm, I'm super grateful for it and honestly i feel a lot better like i already knew it was really good but now that i've really studied it i feel so much better paying that little bit of money for um an organic uh item because i i, I truly know that i can trust um, that where it came from is a good place. Yeah, there's those are a lot of specific guidelines that that USDA organic yeah. follows. So that's like you can feel really good about that one. I mean, that's the non-GMO is like oh, it's kind of non-GMO, but not really. Yeah. You know, like we, there are still some GMOs in there. You know, it's it like it is our target, but we haven't met it yet because we're still a project. <laughs> yeah, like you know, yeah, that's, whatever. So, well, that's good to know. So, basically, if you're trying to eat healthy and trying to eat organic, then you need to look for the that USDA. Yeah. And, you know, a, a lot of people struggle with being able to afford organic, and I get it, because it it is about a dollar, dollar fifty more, um, especially for produce. I mean, like yesterday, I bought organic celery for two fifty a bunch when I know I can get conventional um, celery for like probably a dollar fifty, maybe even ninety nine cents on sale. Yeah. But what's the difference? Like, do I want to eat conventional celery that has been significantly sprayed with herbicides, pesticides? and grown in um, soil that has um, synthetic fertilizer full of toxins. And so then I'm just basically eating like poison celery, but I'm like, oh, but I'm eating celery and there's no nutrients in it. And you know, like I don't feel good that way. And that's the way I look at it because that's exactly where it's coming from and what's happening. Or do I want to pay a little bit more money and get the organic one? Because you guys got to think about the long run here, okay? It's like, People aren't willing to invest that 20 extra dollars on their grocery bill for their health now, but yet if they don't, then you're going to have health problems eventually. And then what about when you have to just turn around and invest thousands of dollars in your health at that point because you're sick and you're trying to get back to being healthy, but you could have made all those little small choices leading up over your life to keep yourself good and like prevent things from happening. But you said, but you chose to have a small mindset and say, oh no, I can't afford that right now. I'm gonna just get the conventional one. That's the, that's the nature of the beast right now. You know, it's like, well, I eat celery now, I feel fine. It's not affecting me, I'll worry about it later. But you know, I just saw that statistic that an average couple in retirement spends $250,000 on medical bills. Wow. 
Okay, so like you're going to have to factor that into your retirement planning. Mm -hmm. The fact that you're not healthy, you're spending more time at the doctors, you're sicker. And how much fun is that? Are you really enjoying your retirement if you're sick and you're living those last years miserable, don't feel good? Well, not to mention the big pharma just rapes our senior citizens with their medication prices. Yeah. So, you know, it so, all adds up to that, you yeah, know, and take care of yourself now. It's like, you, you might not feel the difference at first. You might not think it, and it's obviously something that most people don't worry about until they get older. Usually like when you have a family, then you like, especially for a guy coming from a guy's perspective, I didn't start worrying about my health at all until I had kids. And then I started thinking, you know, I don't want to be unhealthy and die young. When I got kids, I want to be around. I want to be around and see my grandkids. I want to be around as long as I can. Mm -hmm. And I started to worry a little bit more about my health and, and look at labels a little bit more or try to make better choices. But I didn't have all the education. And so obviously your education is helping me to understand food on a whole nother level, like just like a freakish level because you're a freak about <laughs> food and, and labels and like stuff like that He's so lucky. i'm so lucky <laughs> all right so that's a that's it for me let's jump into what you got going on all right well so i decided to try to discuss and teach everyone and learn about what about the history and what the u.s dollar is or just a dollar in general and boy was it quite a challenge it, there's so much and so much to learn and and i couldn't figure out what to leave in what to leave out how to wrap it up into a podcast i mean it was like doing this whole college kind of like project you know like i haven't worked this hard since college seriously you guys he's been, he's been studying and reading and writing for two days straight so I, really I mean, that's two this. days straight. I was doing, I've, <laughs> I have these notes from like last week, like two days straight is not even true. I've, oh, that's it's, true. Last I've week, worked yeah. on this for like, since our first podcast dropped. But I mean, let's be honest. I haven't worked it. I never worked this hard in college at all. So like I'm working harder on this dumb podcast than I ever did <laughs> in college. Cause I, you know, I just well, got because by. Because it's that meaningful and that important. It get, is important because, because here's the thing. We all just kind of turn our head and, and just go with the, you know, the masses and no one really understands what the dollar and actually how it works. We just f see that we have this paper money in our wallet and we buy stuff with it. And, oh, I, you know, there's a dollar menu. I can buy shit on the dollar menu or it cost me this much money to pay for my car loan. It cost me this much to pay for homes and all these kinds of things. But what you don't realize is it's not stable and it's not just going to be there like it is forever because it's very volatile and it's very manipulated the the federal government the federal banks you know the central banks of america and the world manipulate our money so bear with me here i got like 17 pages of notes in front of me it's like i was writing fast i might not be able to read it all the best at first so just bear with me um I, it's it's a huge thing for you to understand the dollar and the money system that we have right now so i spent a lot of time on this um just trying to be able to put it into a nice podcast to help you understand so 
what I'm going to start off is just saying, like, what is a dollar? All right. So a dollar, this is, you know, like the definition is an item or commodity that is agreed to be accepted in trade. Okay. So in America, before the Revolutionary War, the Spanish milled dollar was what the market used and recognized as money. So from the 1530s to the 1850s, the Spanish dollar had a weight of approximately 387 grains of fine silver. So it was linked to silver. Coinage was about precious metals back then. So, you know, that's what money was. That's how you paid for things. So So it hasn't always been a paper dollar. It used to be a coin. Right, and it, it used to actually be like, they used to barter before that. So it used to be like, well, you have, you grill rice and I have cattle and you would trade rice for cattle mm-hmm. or you you made shoes and you, you know, so you would trade like services or goods mm-hmm. until, you know, they started trying to figure out a money system, you know, so. Um, so they would actually melt down silver. Right. Okay. So, I mean, it was actually pure silver. It, it actually had value. It was, that dollar was was a precious metal. So it, whatever you held in your hand was worth something, you know? So the the, the world had kind of like um, a system and it was all kind of based off that Spanish dollar. The Spanish, the Spanish had created that, that milled dollar that they had made. And so everyone kind of based their, their money off of that and how you traded goods, you know? So, in like 1876, they started to like, okay, try to come up with the currency for America. And they, so they was, what they said was the money unit or dollar will contain 375 grains and 64 one hundredths of a grain of fine silver. A dollar that contains that much silver will be worth as much as the new Spanish dollar. So they were doing it by grains of silver, and that was like kind of how they started to try to make the dollar. So at the adoption of the Constitution, the framers and the Continental Congress recognized that the Spanish dollar was money standard, and the value of the dollar was determined by your silver content. So... It was a it was a fixed value, right? Because it was based on the precious metal of silver. It wasn't just made up by government, right? So what happened was when they when they wrote the constitution and they were discussing money, when they were trying to figure out what money would be like, they had to like make it a fixed value and there was a couple reasons. So the 7th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution mentions the dollar. And what it says is, in suits, so what they're talking about is like lawsuits, at common law, where value of the controversy shall exceed $20, the right or trial by jury shall be preserved. So they put a fixed value of $20 that if, that, if you had a controversy with another American, of over $20, you had the right to go to trial by ju- by jury. So the dollar being based on silver content makes the value fixed. So if the value of the dollar wasn't fixed, Congress could manipulate the value of money so as to eliminate common law jury. 
So do you see the problem here with Congress having the ability to manipulate money? They could have eliminated trial by jury if they wanted to, right? So if the dollar was not a fixed value, Congress could have manipulated it and eliminated trial by jury. So it would have taken away rights of Americans who had the right to a trial by jury. So this was put into our Constitution, right? It was the Seventh Amendment. I never knew those two were linked. No, you know, I didn't either. So, I mean, like those that were in favor of trial by jury would not have voted to ratify the Constitution if the dollar wasn't a fixed value. Hmm. You know, because if you believed in trial by jury, why would you agree to letting them manipulate it, right? You, you won't. So they had to set it in stone, like a dollar is worth this much, and if the controversy is over $20, then we have the right to trial by jury, you know? I love that. It's genius. Well, yes. The forefathers understood our money had to be fixed. Otherwise, corruption would be possible by government. Mm-hmm. So these four, our forefathers were brilliant people. Yeah. In order to write, of course, the Constitution is not perfect, but the things that they did, and it's able to last, you know, what, hundreds of years and, and turn into the greatest nation that the world has ever seen, you know, it's just insane. So... Again, though, right, it's it's brought up in the Constitution again in Article 1, Section 9. It created a tax on the importation of slaves, not to exceed $10 per person. So this is in the Constitution that there is a tax on the importation of slaves, not to exceed $10 per person. So if this was not a fixed amount, Anti-slavery factions in Congress could manipulate value of the dollar to, one, make it difficult to pay the fixed tax, or they could also decrease profits from the slave trade. So, again, it was a fixed amount on, as bad as it sounds, on a person, on a slave that was being brought over here. You know, so, again, like the pro-slavery states, they would not have ratified the Constitution if the dollar was not a fixed value. Right, because then you're trying to like bring over slaves, and the and the states that didn't support slavery would have just manipulated the money. Congress would have messed with it. It would have made your slave trade less, you know, you wouldn't have been less profitable, and it, it would have caused a lot of problems. So it was fixed. And can I ask you a question? Yeah. Um, I wasn't completely clear on what you were saying about the Spanish dollar. Did they? see that and use that as like their example and kind of copy it yes because that was what that was kind of like the example used in the world Mm -hmm. because the spanish you know obviously the spanish has been around a lot longer than america yeah so that's that's what the currency was like the the number one currency in the world back then was the spanish milled dollar so it was Mm -hmm. a coin I see. You know, that they had. And so that's kind of what everyone kind of went off of. So America tried to copy that in a way and use the same kind of guidelines to their coins. And so then they what they did was say that their coins that they did that had certain amount of silver in it was as good as a Spanish dollar. Ah, uh, okay. Got it. So after the, the Constitution was ratified came the Coinage Act of 1792. 
So what they said was, the money or account of the United States shall be expressed in dollars or units. In dollars or units, what they meant was, each to be of the value of the Spanish dollar. So this is what you're asking me. As the same as is now. Current and milled to contain 371 grains and 416 parts of a grain of pure or 416 grains of standard silver. So our money was linked to silver and precious metal had to be a certain amount. It had to be it had to be silver. It had to be valuable. It just wasn't some piece of metal that they grabbed and said, this is our money. It had to be silver. It had to be a certain percentage and grain of silver. So it was actually worth something. So what that means is the dollar had intrinsic value. So intrinsic value means like, as is in the world, the thing that you're holding actually is valuable. Like you could literally melt it down and it would still be our precious metal. It's valuable. Like it's like holding a piece of jewelry that's pure it's valuable like a diamond. doesn't matter like what it's sold for in different stores i mean you know like, let's say like one store has a going out of business sale but the fact is it's worth money regardless if all the jewelry stores were to close if mm-hmm. you still were holding them something that's pure gold it's worth money right mm-hmm. so i really love how this is how everything um how you're saying with the jury and how everything was grounded by this coin right otherwise they would have had in they couldn't have had um peace in the land well they're they're trying to create a nation you're trying to create a nation of like laws and guidelines and what's more important than than money and it's like yeah it's like the foundation and everything trickled off of it right because like you know that money so when america was started obviously it's like 90 percent of everybody was an entrepreneur at the time you're you are a blacksmith you i sold beaver pelts yeah you whatever it is like right you you make guns you you're a farmer and you have goods to sell well mm-hmm. what are they going to give you to buy those goods you know so the the thing that happened was like it was like gold or it was like first like cattle and things like that but at some point like you know there needs to be something that kind of like you can carry on you you're not going to always walk around with like seven sheep you know (laughs) and carrying like 47 pairs of shoes that you made like you know like to go buy yourself um whatever a beer (laughs) but like so you know you needed some sort of currency so um and and the Spanish dollar had worked for 300 years, you know? So, so that's how Americans started with, with the, with the currency. It was based on the actual precious metal content. It was actually worth something. It had intrinsic value, which means it just, whatever, whatever they said, it was worth money. You could go somewhere else and trade that silver for something because silver is valuable, right? I mean, obviously like it's just, if you just think about it and compare it to today, you're holding that paper dollar. That paper dollar does not have intrinsic value because let's say the U.S. dollar was worth nothing now, but you're still holding that piece of paper. How much could you trade that piece of paper for? Nothing. nothing. It's just a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. But, if the US, but if the U.S. dollar went to nothing, but you were holding pure silver in your hand, 
that silver is still worth money. Mm -hmm. So that's how we were founded. Our money was worth something. No matter what was said, you had a precious metal of silver or gold, and those things were worth money. So, I love that. Right, and, 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 they, and it was in the Constitution to be fixed, you know, so it wouldn't cause any problems. But, like, um, things change, you know, after a, after a while. So, so fast forward a few hundred years. Well, not even that. In 1861, the, Fed, the Feds suspended the specie payments to raise revenue for the Civil War. So what that means, a specie is like gold or silver, the, the coinage. That's what species is called. It's like the money that's in a coin form, right? So they didn't want to exhaust their gold and silver. So they suspended payments of gold and silver to raise revenue for the Civil War. So that was 1861. So in 1862, they had the first Legal Tender Act which allowed the federal government to issue $150 million in irredeemable U.S. notes, okay? They were green, so they called them greenbacks. So this is where you hear that term greenback dollar. This happened in the Civil War. To pay for the war, they created fake money. So hang on. They, they were worried about running out of gold and silver right they don't basically want, and they're yeah. like we don't want to keep using this up right so we're gonna come up with some other system right and that's where paper money comes in boom here in america yes okay wow so you know these notes were backed only by the credit of the u.s government where all, all our money up to that point is backed by gold and silver right but these notes were backed only by the credit of the U.S. government. So in essence, they were the first fiat currency, right? So fiat currency meaning not backed by gold or silver bullion. Um, bullion, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, right? Bullion is gold or silver in bulk, coining or valued by weight. So, you know, just like a bunch of gold or silver, basically, like a bulk you know, so they created these greenback dollars that in essence was just paper money that was backed by the U.S. government, by the credit. So they're saying, oh, it's worth money. We'll we'll take care of it later. You know, you, you trust us. They were paying the soldiers that were at war. For that's them. how they paid for the war. So at the end of the Civil War, there were 431 million greenbacks that had been issued. Whoa. So... So all these soldiers have all these greenbacks, and now they're like, okay, we're home, the war's over, we want to trade this in and get, like, buy things for it? Like, could they use it at a store? Yeah, I mean, it was like, it was money at the time, you know? Yeah. So, um... I was trying to find this quote I have, but... Yeah, so he has seriously, like... 12 pages of notes, you guys. <laughs> well, it was like... Um, I love it. This is so cool. I've never studied this before. I, I'm learning myself. Yeah, I mean, it's... So, they just created these notes, right? At the... For the Civil War to pay for it. Because they didn't want to just be giving up all their gold and silver. So, there was a quote from this Republican. His name was Owen Lovejoy. 
And what it says is powerful. It is not in the power of Congress to accomplish an impossibility in making something out of nothing. So paper money, right? The piece of paper you stamp as $5 is not $5. And it will never be unless it is convertible into a $5 gold piece. And to profess it is, is simply a delusion and fallacy. In the gut. So think about today and today's money. Mm-hmm. And I read that again. It is not in the power of Congress to accomplish an impossibility in making something out of nothing. The piece of paper you stamp as $5 is not $5. And it will never be unless it is convertible into a $5 gold piece. And to profess it is, is simply a delusion and a fallacy. Yeah, like I said before, when they were holding that silver coin, you can literally melt that down. You can do things with it. It was always going to be a valuable thing in your hand. Right. Or yeah, like our even if you have a hundred dollar bill in your hand and our our money collapses, that's just toilet paper. Okay, so I gotta move on. I got a lot to get to really fast, so I'm gonna try to get it fast. So this brought up um the coinage clause that is in the constitution. It's Article One, Section Eight, Clause Five. What it says is Congress shall have power to coin money, regulate the value thereof and of foreign coin, and fix the standard of weights and measures. Okay, so this is in the Constitution. But this was confusing, right? Because later people argued about this because what it says is shall have the power to coin money, right? So... There was a debate exactly what this meant, especially the word coin. Was it actually a physical coin or just money in general? So some used this clause to argue that paper money was unconstitutional. But in 1871, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a case, Knox versus Lee, they ruled that a paper currency not backed by gold or silver was constitutional. Hmm. So they interpreted that as it is constitutional. I wonder what the full or forefather is would say. That's the one. That's like one of the things right there that in in the Constitution where it says the power to coin money, right? So like it doesn't say the power to print money. It says to coin money. So I would think that because of the other areas in the Constitution where they made that money fixed value, mm-hmm. that the coin money would mean. It was coins. A physical coin. A physical coin. But, Mm -hmm. you know, who am I to argue with the U.S., the Supreme Court? And so in 1871, a lot of shit changed because they decided that it was constitutional for them to have a currency that's not backed by gold or silver. So just, you know, which is fiat money, you know, which is it's. What is it worth if it's not backed by those? It's it's worth what the government is explaining to you, right? So Ooh, that's kind of creepy. It is. So in eight, that was eighteen seventy one. So then in eighteen seventy five there was a thing called the Specie Payment Resumption Act. So this restored the nation to a gold standard. So this act authorized the Secretary of Treasury to redeem outstanding greenbacks or U.S. notes in gold species on demand. So you could take those greenbacks to the bank and get your gold. Mm-hmm. So that was in 1875. But so in 1900, the dollar 
was on the silver and the gold standard. But they passed the Gold Standard Act in 1900, thus making both gold and silver legal tender coinage of the USA, guaranteeing the dollar was convertible to gold. So that was in 1900. So they made it like that your... The legal tender was, was of the USA was gold and silver, and you can convert it to that, you know? So... So, we're still linked to gold and silver at this point. So, that still stands? Not, no, it doesn't anymore. Oh, okay. But this is a 1900. Even though in 1871 they said it was legal to have basically paper money, you know, without being backed by gold and silver. But, so like from 1874 to 1964, they had silver certificates. And they were a type of money... And could be reduced, uh, redeemed for the same face value of silver dollar coins, or later in raw silver bullion. So that went from 1874 to 1964. They had these things called silver certificates. So those were as good as silver. Hmm. But in 1913, the Federal Reserve Act took place. So the Federal Reserve Act was in 1913 and that was that created the federal reserve systems the central the central banking system of the united states so that is where we are today we have the federal banking systems right we have the fed that you all hear about and the central banks so you know this is happened in 1913 and what it gave them is the ability to print money to ensure the economic stability of America. Before 1913, financial panics were common because investors were unsure of the, the safety of their, their, their bank deposits. So before the Fed, private wealthy Americans, such as J.P. Morgan, often provided lines of credit to help stabilize the financial sector. So like these super rich people in America would be kind of like your bank. So when the, the economy was unstable, J.P. Morgan, who I'm sure you've all heard of, mm -hmm. would provide lines of credit to stabilize our economy. Wow, that's crazy. So in, that was 1913. They created the Federal Reserve. So like people like J.P. Morgan wouldn't have to do that anymore. They gave this Federal Reserve the ability to print money. I mean, that does make sense. They're kind of like, eh, we don't really feel comfortable depending on just, like, these wealthy people that keep our whole country stable. So maybe we should have our own way of taking care of ourselves. Right. So, I mean, you know, like, it makes sense to a point, right? But so in 1914, a federal note was equal to its value in species, gold and silver. So it still was, we were still on the gold standard. But bring on, that was 1914, but bring on the Great Depression, the Great Depression, the economy was tanking. That made many people head to the banks to withdraw their money. It created a run on the banks because the, the economy was tanking, right? So the Great Depression caused a whole big chaotic thing. And that went, you know, like the, the, the huge downturn of the depression was like 19 or uh, yeah 1929 and then brought in um 
President Roosevelt. And in 1933, he came. He signed off on the emergency the Emergency Banking Act. So, basically, what happened was they shut down the banks for a week. It was like a, they called it a week long banking holiday. The banks were closed because everybody was panicking. Panicking and running to the banks to withdraw their money because they didn't trust the banks anymore. Mm-hmm. So they closed the banks for a week to give the federal government time to like figure this out. And like first started in one state and then it just like went on. Every state started to close their banks down. Which created even more chaos and panic. Of course. Like what do you, how do you feel about that? You know? Yeah. Like, so in 1933, money. the Emergency Banking Act was signed. And... What that was is give the Secretary of the Treasury and his discretion may require any or all individuals, partnerships, associations, and corporations to pay and deliver to the Treasurer of the United States any or all gold, coin, gold bullion, and gold certificates owned by such individuals. Upon receipt of such gold, coin, gold bullion, or gold certificates, the Secretary of the Treasury shall pay, therefore, an equivalent amount of of the form of coin or currency coined or issued in the laws of the United States. So, basically, they were telling you to bring in your gold and they'll give you some paper that says you you have gold. Mm, Okay. Right. So, the problem was everyone had lost their confidence in the banks. So, the 1933 Emergency Banking Act was made to restore confidence in the banks. So what happened was the federal banks committed to supply, so basically print, unlimited currency to the reopened banks. So they created 100% deposit insurance. So they told the people, your deposits are 100% insured now. So the people started to redeposit their money back into the banking system. But one month later, President Roosevelt signed an executive order making possession of gold a criminal offense. What? So you had to take your gold to the banks. Because the problem is the banks couldn't back your actual money with gold like they were supposed to. So... So they saw people that had gold as like a threat? Right. So it was it became a criminal offense. You could not possess certain amounts of gold. Like you could like you could like um hold on to like antique or like rare like coins and stuff like that, but you could not have like bulk amounts of gold or silver. Well, I think it was just that gold seems actually. Highly against our rights. Yeah, so even gold certificates. Wow. And this lasted for, like, years and decades. I mean, did you even know it was that, that they could ever make it illegal for you to own gold? I mean, does, Yeah, something that comes from the earth, like, how? It just seems pretty crazy, right? So like, what used to be, like, a foundation of our money system now turned into something that could put you in jail. Yeah. So, that was, what, 1933. But in 1944 came the Bretton Woods. Okay, so it was the Bretton Woods Agreement. It was all the allied nations after World War II. They established the new global monetary system. It replaced the gold standard with the U.S. dollar as global currency. So this is when, in 1944, the U.S. dollar became 
the global currency that everyone based their currency on, where the U.S. dollar became the number one currency in the world. And that's when you started to compare your currency to the, what is it worth compared to the U.S. dollar? The U.S. dollar was the number one currency, and it was agreed upon in 1944 at the Bretton Woods Agreement. Because it was in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, I believe. So, after the agreement, America was the only country allowed to print dollars. So, the entire world could not print dollars. It was only America. So. A lot of power. Before the Bretton Woods, each country guaranteed it would redeem its currency for gold. But after the Bretton Woods, it would redeem for U.S. dollars, not gold. So the reason was the U.S. held three-fourths of the world's supply of gold. Hmm. So we had three-fourths of the entire world's gold content. The America held on to that. So basically what happened was the U.S. dollar was the gold standard. And all of this was because during world wars, countries would print fiat money, you know, fake money, to pay for wars. This caused hyperinflation. The value of money fell so dramatically, in some cases, people needed to wheelbarrow, they needed wheelbarrows of cash to buy a loaf of bread. Oh, wow. And that happened in many countries. So they went back to the gold standard until the Great Depression made a run on the banks and gold due to gold rising in value. So what is fiat money? Fiat money is government issued currency that isn't backed by a commodity such as gold. It gives the government's central banks greater control over the economy because they control how much currency is printed. Fiat means let it be done. It's a legal authoritative decision that has absolute sanction. So fiat money is a currency without intrinsic value that has been established as money, often by government regulation. So it's that piece of paper that you hold in your hand that intrinsically is worth nothing, but because the U.S. government says it's worth $5, it's worth $5. So in real terms, it's worth nothing, but because the government says it's worth something, it's worth something. Right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, like, it, it does not have use value and has value only because government maintains its value or because parties engaging in exchange. Which, in our government, is, like, so deeply in debt. Yeah, well... That, and that's what's backing our fake money. It's kind of all creepy. Well, what's the problem? The more they print... The higher inflation goes up, the less it's worth, Mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, obviously, we've all seen that. Like, talk to your grandma or talk to your mom. How much did they used to go to the movies? How much did they used to pay for gas? 10 cents for a gallon of gas. Right. So, obviously, we all understand that. But so, let's just be blunt here. Fiat money has never worked. It has always failed. Ever, ever, every fiat currency since the Romans in the first century has failed. Eventually, the paper money will lose its value. It'll lose so much value, the currency collapses, and so does the economy of that currency. The Romans tried it. It failed. 
The Chinese tried it in the 11th century. It failed. France tried it. The paper money was backed by coinage until the people actually wanted their coins. So that's what happens, right? It's like, oh, your paper money is as good as gold. Oh, your paper money is as good as silver. But when you go to the bank and say you want your shit, like I want, some, I want my gold, I want my silver. And if everybody starts going, the bank doesn't have it. Would we be able to take a $1 bill and go into a bank and say I want a $1 silver coin? No. That is that is no longer exists. Wow. And but right now it's the same with paper money because it's fake money where if if every one of us went to the bank asking for our the, our savings, do you think the bank has it? If everyone at your local bank showed up at the same time that has money in their bank let's say you have ten thousand dollars your neighbor has twenty thousand dollars your mom has five thousand dollars and you all went there and tried to withdraw all your money you think the bank just goes into the back and comes out with cash and gives it to you they don't have it and this is the problem this has always been a problem they never had all the gold they never had all the silver right so in france it was good until everyone started saying well we want our coins so they oversupplied the paper money, making it worthless. So naturally, when, the, when they couldn't supply the coins, the currency collapsed. France tried it again, but by 1795, inflation was at approximately 13,000%. That's right, 13,000%. Napoleon bought the gold franc. He brought, Napoleon brought the gold franc, which stabilized the currency. So it was a gold franc. He realized gold was stable form of currency. So Napoleon stabilized France. With gold. Yeah. But again, France tried the paper money in the 1930s. So in the 1930s, France went back to the paper money. 12 years worth of inflation, the paper franc, franc, whatever you call it, lost 99% of its value. So in 12 years, after they created the paper franc, franc, (laughs) <laughs> it had lost 99% of its value. Okay, what about Germany in post-World War One? Germany post-war was ordered to pay re- reparations. They couldn't afford to pay their debt, so they just printed money called the mark. <clears throat> so, at the time, 12 marks was equivalent to one U.S. dollar. Approximately four and a half years later, it took 4.2 trillion marks to equal one U.S. dollar. Oh, my gosh. So it was like 12 marks, right? And 4.2 trillion marks to equal one dollar. That was 1923, causing severe economic hardships in Germany and a desperate nation. Soon the world would see the rise of Adolf Hitler. Huh, go figure. Right? I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on with other countries. 1930s, Argentina was thriving until the collapse of their currency. In the 90s, Italy, Finland, Norway had currency devaluation and it led to huge problems. Mexico and the peso in 97, Malaysia, the Philippines, Indonesia, in 98, Russia and their ruble, Zimbabwe in current times. They're, they're suffering hugely because they've had paper currencies that have that have just devalued so much, right? Oh my gosh. So this doesn't make me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Well, you know, like like I said, this was a ton of information and shit, right? So like let's go back to the Bretton Woods where they established the US dollar as the global currency. 
So that was 1944. So that system worked up until 1971 and President Nixon. Due to inflation and the recession and the, the dollar being the global currency, it caused the U.S. economy to go stagnant. So Nixon started to deflate the value of the U.S. dollar. But, the, but that didn't work. It backfired. It backfired on him. It created a run on the U.S. gold reserves at four. Okay, so we're back here with the continuation of the last episode with the fiat currency since we got cut off. So obviously we're amateurs. We're learning this, figuring this shit out, and had no idea. We had a 60-minute time limit, and it cut off on me. Thanks, Anchor. Uh, Since we're doing this on Anchor right now, and we're just trying to make our way up, you know, so please bear with us and be understanding and don't call us lame-ass podcasters, okay? (laughs) So this little instant instant break that we were forced to have kind of actually made me realize something, too, that... In America, they actually tried paper money even before the Constitution. And so I just wanted to let you guys know that first before I continued back with President Nixon screwing up our money. Um, So like in 1690, Massachusetts issued a colonial, the colonial notes that were redeemable for gold, silver, cattle, and other commodities. But so soon other colonies started fiat money, but like usual, they issued too much. So when you say it's redeemable for gold, silver, cattle, you have to be able to actually exchange it for those commodities. So if I come back and say, I want my gold, I want my silver, I want my cattle, you need to have it, and which they didn't. So obviously that just, you know, like destroyed the currency. Next, the Revolutionary War. It brought what they called the Continental to finance the war. So this is, if you... Start to real, uh, like understand, during the times of war, paper money was created all over and all over the world. It, it brought the rise of paper money to finance the war. So it's, it's kind of crazy, you know, like they just create some paper money. So the Revolutionary War brought the Continental. You guessed it, though, it collapsed. And it started a saying that, like, things are not worth the Continental, that was like some slang back in the day that it's not worth the Continental, you know? Like, so if you made me like some crappy burger, I would tell you it's not worth the Continental, you know? <laughs> but I like that. Americans at that point, before the Constitution, they no longer trusted paper money. So now you can see how that probably created the, the fixed coinage that they, were, that they wrote in the U.S. Constitution, you know, that it had to be a fixed amount of money. So... You know, like gold and silver. So anyway, let's go back to Nixon and him devaluing, he's, him deflating the value of the U.S. dollar. Um, so hopefully you listen to episode one so you know where I left off and you know what I'm talking about. If not, um, go back. Go back and listen. Listen, it's, it's very valuable to understand our money system. It'll help you moving forward with how you handle your money and how you look at it. Like if you just have your money sitting in the bank, you realize you have paper money sitting in the bank. The banks could close because the government's done it. 
um, your your the value of that of that paper money could devalue and go down to nothing. And what do you have at that point? You just lost twenty thousand dollars that you had in the bank, thinking you're really you're set, but you're really not. So Nixon deflated the value of the U.S. dollar because of the issues that they were having in the economy with the inflation and like the recession but it backfired what it, cr- it created a run on the u.s gold reserves at fort knox people quickly were redeeming their devaluing dollar for gold so they saw that the the value of the dollar was devaluing so they quickly took their money and ran to the banks at fort knox where we had our gold to get their gold so would you rather have a, a piece of paper that was devaluing or would you rather have gold that was stable and worth mo- worth something gold. right and so this is what's going on and now agreed <laughs> so yeah so in 1973 nixon completely took the u.s dollar off the gold standard oh. they called this the nixon shock because he shocked the world with this you know he had some <clears throat> presidential you know like what do you call it? Like he was on TV and he shocked everybody taking this. So this basically destroyed that Bretton Woods system. Remember that I talked about in 1944 where the all the allied nations after World War II put the, the global currency on the U.S. dollar. So because he took the U.S. dollar off the gold standard, it devalued our, our dollar, which just threw the whole world's currency up into a freaking chaotic mess because that's what everyone else's currency was based on was our dollar so they remember they called this the nixon shock so countries began printing more of their own currency because remember also they agreed that no other country was allowed to print money except america but once nixon did that other countries started printing their own currency so that that resulted in huge inflation you know, so probably made everyone feel very insecure. The whole world went through crazy inflation at that time, thanks to President Nixon's brilliant move. You know, he was trying to like stop the recession that they were having, but it just it threw the whole world into this thing. And, and it, you know, it's what we see now in our world is all due to this. So what happened was like it just created like. The whole world just the, it just went into this whole different system of money being manipulated by central banks, inflation because the 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 Fed will print money whenever they see fit, and before they weren't because they didn't need to. Even though they were created in 1913, they weren't printing money because it was it was on the gold standard and things were fine. So from 1944 when the Bretton Woods was established until 1970, right before President Nixon, the unemployment averaged 4.4%. After Nixon's shock, 1971 to current 2019, the unemployment rate averages 6.26%. So almost 2% higher. And 2% don't sound like a lot, but when you're talking about millions and millions of people, it's a huge number. So, babe, can I clarify something? So, if if your dollar, from what I'm learning, when the dollar is backed by the gold standard, that is what you said earlier, where you can take your paper dollar and trade it in for actual gold. Right. So, with Nixon shocking the nation and taking it off the gold standard, basically what that meant was there was nothing secure backing our paper money. Right. 
So of course that's why all the rest of the world just like went into shock and they're like, well, America is worthless now, so we better make our own system, better make our own money. Is well, that like, basically? They had their own, but now they can. They were just printing money too to try to just like put more of their paper money into the system. I mean, it, you know, it's just. So that's where we are still. Where our money is no longer. No. Or do I need to just listen? Well, no, our money, if you look at it, like what it says is like federal note. It's like backed by the, basically it's the same as those ones before where it was backed by the credit of the U.S. government, okay. right? So you, it's you still cannot, not backed by gold. No, you cannot take your money and exchange it for anything. If you went to the bank and said, here's my money, my paper dollars, what would they give you back? So we can't go to the, how everyone else was going to the Federal Reserve and getting actual gold. They were getting you, their gold. You can't do that. None no. of that ever... Wow. No, so that's gone. Like he, hmm. he took that because everyone was going to get their gold, you know. So, but what you don't. So, what does that mean for gold in the current standards? And gold and silver is like, it's worth a lot of money. When people start going and trying to purchase a lot of gold, that means something's going on. And Russia and China have been purchasing tons of gold. So recently, yeah, recently, and and as current, you know, is what we're talking about now. So like, so. Just let me explain a couple other things that once that Nixon went down. So the growth, the the GDP in America is a little under three percent, which from since 1971 to now, which is a full percentage point under the four percent during the post World War II gold standard era. So after like World War II, the America average like four percent GDP. So. Since Nixon, it's averaged a little bit under 3%. So that 1% means that the economy is over $8 trillion smaller than it would be. So our economy is over, and this was like, this stats were a couple years ago, so it's even worse. So over $8 trillion smaller than it would be, that 1%, if we would have stayed on the 4% that we had since World War II, all the way up to 1970, we would have eight trillion more dollars in our economy, which also means that the median family income would be more than twenty thousand dollars a year more had we stayed on the same pace before the Nixon shock. So that would mean like the average family income would be over seventy thousand dollars in this country right now. When right now it's less than fifty thousand. If we were still, if we would have stayed on that same pace wow. when we were on the gold standard, that we were averaging four percent growth. Which is 50% higher income than it is today, which means you would have 50% more taxes, more tax income to, the, to fund the government. Which would mean that we would have more money to cover the programs and everything that they're trying to do right now. So, so it's no, almost like, why don't they go back to that? That's a good question, and some people think that they might. But the dollar has fallen over 70% in value since the Nixon shock. Wow. Right? That's pathetic. So, this is a huge one to me, okay? The U.S. had a small export surplus before the Nixon shock. It was small, but it was a surplus. So, in our trading, we were actually had a surplus. We were winning, right? We, had, we, were, we, were, we were bringing in more money than we were putting out. Now, our, ex, we, now our exports are losing over $800 billion a year. Oh. So we were actually in a but surplus. Trump is working on 
Yeah, he's actually this last month it lowered a little bit, but wow. the we went from having a surplus to being over eight hundred billion dollars deficit in our trade in our trading. Like so, WTF on that? Eight hundred billion dollars, guys. WTF? <laughs> like why? So I mean, like, let's just look at it now, okay? So a hundred dollars in nineteen thirty three. I mean, sorry, 1913. So if you had $100 in 1913, right? $100 in 1913. In 1940, that $100, you would need $142 to buy the same thing that $100 bought in 1913. In 1940. So roughly about 30 years later, you would need an extra $42. So if we jump another 30 years to 1970... Right before Nixon, you would need $386 to buy the same stuff, amount of goods, as the $100 in 1913. Right? So it went from 1913, $100, to 1940, $142, 1970, $386. So. Gotta love that inflation. Yeah, right? So that was right before the Nixon shock. So now let's move up. I was moving up by 30 years at a time. So now since the Nixon shock, I'm going to move up only by 10 years. So in 1970, it was $386. In 1980, it was $794. So 10 years later, it, it had doubled. In 1990, it was $1,300. So the $100 in 1913, what it would buy you, would now take you $1,300 to buy the same thing. And that's 1990. Ten years later, in 2000, it was $1,722. 2010 was $2,211. And as of 2018, it's $2,529. Is what it would take you to buy the same amount of goods it took $100 in 1913. And only $386 in 1970. So, in the 57 years before the Nixon shock it rose 386 percent 47 years after the nixon shock it rose 655 percent so 10 years less and it rose almost two times like 300 percent more and we wonder why people are struggling to live so like right so here's the here's the deal as well so like what it's what it's created is just like all these problems that we deal with today, these financial problems, right? So from 1973 to 2016, the net productivity of America rose 73%, but our pay only rose 12%. So we were producing a 73% clip better, and but you're only getting paid 12% better, right? So what does that mean? That means the rich and the owners of the companies, the big businesses were getting rich and you were just kind of staying stagnant because look at how much inflation went up and your pay only went up 12% over 43 over 43 years. Wow. So like that means like for so like in real terms a low income family actually earns less than they did in 1980. Oh. In real terms. 
And the middle class just earned 6% more than they did in 1980, which is an increase of 0.00172% a year. So basically, since 1980, the middle class has gotten a pay raise of 0.00172% a year. But yet, everything around us has gone up and up and up. Right. So, like, if someone told you they were going to give you that kind of raise per year, would you be happy with that? Uh, hell no. Absolutely not. That's You can't even, like, compute that. Yeah. And so, let, now let's look at, like, what else is this caused? It's, it's caused what we call debt, right? The credit, the debt, the, the whole issue. You know, like, the debt for the working class has quadrupled in 20 years as a percentage of income. Yeah, you're not making enough money to survive, so you're swiping your credit card everywhere you go. Right. You have to get loans for everything to pay for because back in the day, you used to be able to just go buy the things that you needed. So like a Ford F-150 in 1969, a few years before the Nixon shop, cost you $2,500. A brand new F-150. In 2016, that same like... Obviously, it's a different truck, but it's okay. Your basic Ford F-150 now costs you $30,000. That's a price increase of a 1,137%. That's how much to buy your truck has cost you. So who can just go spend the cash? But back in 1969, you think you could save up $2,500 and go buy your truck outright? That's what people did. They didn't get loans because you didn't get a loan on $2,500. You paid for it. Right, but now because inflation and everything has gone up so much, except our pay, we have to get loans for everything, or you go put things on your credit card. So, like, the U.S. consumer owes over thirteen trillion dollars in total debt right now. One trillion in credit cards, one trillion in auto loans for new cars, one point five trillion student loan. I mean, and these and those are low. In real, in you know, in reality, right now, it's more than that, right? And this and, all goes right. And we have to a dog that. I mean, it, it has to do, of course, with our money becoming fiat money, and then which caused the inflation to to grow like crazy, and the fact that they're not paying us any more money. The rich get rich, the middle class get poorer, the low income get poorer. You know, so like. What else is this causing? That means that 73% of Americans die with debt. So you're going to die with debt, and it's an average total of more than $60,000. So imagine that stress. You know, oh, you owe money, you owe money, all the way to your deathbed. And what is this? Does that money just go away? I guess it depends on what kind of debt it is. You know, if it's student loan, it doesn't go anywhere. Like, you can never get rid of your student loans. It's just insane. It's the... The debt problem we have now, the inflation, like think about how much homes cost now, right? Homes used to cost you back in the early, you know, like the 60s, like $10,000, $17,000. They weren't more than your yearly income. Now people make average $47,000 a year, I believe, is a family income. And if you're in California, you can't get a home for less than $400,000, $450,000. That's like 10 years... 10 times your income when before you could get a home for $17,000. Everything was affordable to the American before we got taken off the gold standard. 
we could go buy our car with cash, not have a loan, and own a truck. You could go buy a house for $17,000. Would that take you 30 years to pay off? Well, I don't think so. Like the older generations, like they always encourage that, like save up. I mean, look at Dave Ramsey. Don't don't go into debt for anything. Save up and you know buy everything outright. But I mean, like you and I living here in California, that's that's like a joke. Yeah. You can't just saving twenty percent for a down payment on a house here is it would take. Like forever, yeah. no one can just go out and buy a thirty thousand dollar vehicle. And I was a. Uh, it's impossible to survive nowadays. Yeah, I was looking at a home because uh, one of my friends is a real estate agent. Now he's flooding my email. He doesn't realize I don't want to buy a house, but he sent me one, and I think it was about five hundred thousand dollars. And so I looked at the mortgage, and. It was with a $103,000 down payment. Huh. And it, the the payment was still going to be like $2,600 a month. So we would, have, we would have to come up with $103,000 and then we'd be paying $2,600 a month. So then I went down and did a, like a 3.5% down payment like for a, you know, a federal, what do you call it, FDA loan. And it raised the mortgage to over $3,000 a month. Oh my god. And you still needed like I forget how much it was, but you still needed like fifteen, eighteen thousand dollar, twenty thousand dollar down payment for three and a half percent. And then you were gonna be paying over three thousand dollars a month. So, so you're like, woohoo, I, I got a house, but now I'm house poor and I can't ever go anywhere or do anything fun. Yeah, I mean that's not an asset anymore, you know. Like it used to be when you could buy a house for seventeen thousand dollars, twenty thousand dollars, it wasn't killing you. You can buy a truck for twenty five hundred dollars and it's all paid off and you're making a decent amount of money because it you know, like the money wasn't devalued so much. But so what's gonna happen now, you know? Like I said before, and, and, and gave you guys like 10 examples, fiat money has always failed. You cannot look. The only one you can say hasn't failed yet is the U.S. dollar at this point. So what do and, we do? And it's gone on for a few years, but it has devalued quite a bit. Look at how much we have to spend to buy things now. And look at how much we're in debt. So what's going to happen eventually is the people are going to get tired of it. The more the feds print money, the, the less our money's worth. And the, one day, the people are going to be tired of it. And there's going to be another run on the bank because they're going to want their money out of the banks. They're going to want to get, you know, like whatever it is. It, it's once the dollar continues to devalue so much where it's un, unlivable, it's going to just explode. And, you know, so like this is why like Russia has been buying gold and China has been buying gold because they see it coming. You know, these things, like, it just can't last forever. Well, you and I have been looking up gold and silver to buy. And gold is really expensive to purchase. So, right, wasn't it, like, super-duper high? Yeah, it's like, uh, I don't know, $1,300 Yeah, so it's, it's kind of unobtainable. I mean, it, it really... When you when you hear all this, you really do want to like be able to have some gold or silver. 
you know well there's all these things and and there's a lot of things that's that's paper you know so like you can invest in gold and it's like paper you're not really holding the gold but what you really want to do is be holding the actual gold as a commodity at the physical gold or silver i would say get silver because it's cheap right now and it's used in cell phones solar like it's a it's a precious metal that's used it's a commodity that's used in a lot of things that we use today but what I think, you know, eventually it's going to it's going to explode, implode and we're going to have a lot of issues and this is what has brought on the rise of cryptocurrency like Bitcoin because Bitcoin is what some people call the people's money. So it's cutting out the middleman and it's getting it's cutting out the banks and the the central banks so there's no more manipulation. They can't just print more money crypto has a fixed amount it's a fixed amount and you cutting out the middleman so if i want to pay you in bitcoin i i pay you directly we don't go through the banks we don't go through western union that charges fees we don't have to deal with all that and it, it's a set amount it's worth a set amount that's not manipulated by the central banks and we cut out all those middlemen and the rise of bitcoin because of the blockchain technology which is like the new internet like blockchain is going to change the world and not just with with the currencies with other things like voting fraud with land ownership with the way that they that you ship and track things like blockchain technology is the future musicians Musicians, right so like your um what do they call that? Like your um, intellectual property. So the things that you are putting out there that come from your brain, they, they can be protected, and you can mono- and you can make money off. You can monetize your actual thoughts, and this is all going to come through blockchain. And the cryptocurrencies are the future of money because what happens is, and what has always happened is, the new money is created to fix the problems of the old money. So as we start off with cattle and shoes and you couldn't carry around your cattle to exchange <laughs> and it went to gold and silver but how you, it was hard to carry around gold and silver to exchange things so that's where the coins became so you can carry things in your pocket mm-hmm. so you can carry paper money in your pocket and be able to exchange because you can't lug around a big you know do wheelbarrow you know, full of gold do you know what that reminds me of do you um do you remember that old um the movie, the Disney cartoon movie, where the fryer, the fryer tuck guy used to go around with his bag of coins and he would collect everyone's coins and have his big bag. No, yeah. but, but <laughs> don't. I mean, it's, I, I can't, I understand, but yeah, yeah. So all these different monies that have come up over time is ways to create is to ways to fix problems of the old currency so that's where crypto is involved now to fix the problems with the fiat money and the manipulation and the devaluation and all these in the in the fraud and the people stealing your money and all these things so this is where crypto is coming in to to hopefully fix the problems of the money system that we're dealing with now where it's trustworthy, it can't be manipulated, you know, it can't be, there can't be any fraud going on because that blockchain technology is legit. So keep your eyes and ears open, do some research and study and, you know, look up that cryptocurrency because as I've gone over all the problems we have now 
with this fiat money, which is just paper money, right? So the money in your wallet could eventually be worth nothing. It's not guaranteed that it's always going to be worth $20. And, and guess what? Your $20 doesn't buy what it did a year ago. So that $20 isn't $20 anymore. It's like $18 it's in, all, in all reality. Slowly going down. And if it's sitting in the bank, it's losing money. You're not getting a good return. You're not getting interest. The inflation, it's going up faster than your interest is going up. So your money is devaluing just sitting in the bank. You have to make your money move. It has to work. Otherwise, it's not worth anything. So on that note, I want to wrap this up because it's crazy long. And I hope that you learned a lot from this because it was very hard to put all together for me. You know, it was a big task. You did a great job. And it was hard. But I wanted you to understand money because it is a problem. If you don't understand it and you just put your head in the sand... You're going to have a lot of problems eventually. It's coming. So you can't just ignore it. So do some research and start to, to learn about money because times are changing and you need to be ahead of, ahead of the curve. All right. On that note, take care. Check us out on Instagram, Battle for Wellness, and we'll see you next time. Bye.